Hey, hey, and welcome back to the new season of Shade with me, Lou Mensah. This season, we will be reflecting on the power of the image within the civil rights movement. And my guests include founding members of Black Lives Matter, photographers and editors from publications such as Time magazine and ID, curators and art critics. And together, we will be reflecting on the imagery and the stories that came from the Black Lives Matter 2020 uprisings with the people who created them. And I want to say a big thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I'm honoured to have you all involved in this show and supporting this work and elevating our stories. For as little as £1 a month, you can become a Shade patron and join others, such as author of White Supremacy and Me, Leila Saad. So go to patreon.com forward slash shade podcast to become a patron. And for those of you who are new to the show, as an introduction, I wanted to share a description of the work by photographer Roy D. Caraver, which was written by Teju Cole, that encapsulates something that I also aspire to with this show. Cole says, His work was, in fact, an exploration of just how much can be seen in the shadowed parts of a photograph, or how much could be imagined in those shadows. And I really loved this as I imagined Shade to be a respite from the intensity surrounding the discussions on race, a place where we can come to rest, explore representation within imagery and unveil the processes behind creating those images. And I also love this from James Baldwin on the creative process from his work, The Artist's Struggle. He says that the role of the artist is to illuminate that darkness, to blaze roads through that vast forest so that we will not, in all our doing, lose sight of its purpose, which is, after all, to make the world a more human dwelling place. And in the same way, to become a social human being, one modifies and suppresses and ultimately, without great courage, lies to oneself about all of one's interior So have we as a nation modified or suppressed and lied about the darker forces in our history. This says so much to me about the role of the artists in these times whose work we will be talking about throughout the whole of this season. Now, if you're wondering about the music that you've been hearing, it has been created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson. Brian's known in part for his work as half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Brian wrote, arranged and produced over 10 albums with Gil. And during the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, Gil and Brian's arrangement of The Revolution Will Not Be Televised was circulated so widely because it resonates as much today as it did when it was released in 1971. And since then, Brian has collaborated with some icons from Stevie Wonder to Roy Ayers, Gregory Porter, Kendrick Lamar. And his tunes have been sampled by so many, including Tupac, Kanye and Common. And I can't believe that Brian's collaborated with shade this season so here we go black images matter episode one image one time magazine june 2020 the overdue awakening support for shades black images matter series comes from chloris creators of organic superior grade CBD formulations. I talk with the co-founder Kim quite often about our holistic approach, not only to health, but also to our children's education. 
an education that nurtures an interest and investment in the world that we all share. And part of Cloris's investment is being a long-term partner of the charity Help Refugees. Cloris's co-founder, Pedram, has spent many years working with refugees as an interpreter. Kim said of our collaboration that it's crucial to support platforms that engage in important conversations surrounding race, as Shade does so brilliantly. So go to chloriscbd.com to find out more about the range and for information on help refugees. And sign up to support Shade through Patreon and you'll receive a Chloris subscriber gift. Time magazine, June 2020, The Overdue Awakening. Cover image photographed by Devin Allen, and I'm in conversation with editor-at-large of special projects at Time magazine, Paul Moakley. And in this conversation, Paul and I discuss the focus on representation at Time magazine, and he also shares the process of working on the cover story during the crazy time of the early pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests, and how he discovered Devon's work, and what role these cover stories play in our wider dialogue on race, and who gets to tell our stories. We're here to talk about the imagery and the stories that came from the summer of 2020. So it was a really unusual time. What I'm really interested in to get an idea of how that affected you, like in the work that you do, could you just give me a bit of an idea of what your usual working pattern is like at work, like before the pandemic and before the uprisings really gathered momentum? Like, How do you decide on the stories that time is going to cover? That kind of thing. Sure. Thank you so much, first of all, just for inviting me to do this. I I really started to explore the podcast and and really love it. So I'm really happy to be part of this ongoing conversation you're having about Black artists and photographers and, and culture. Getting to what we do at time, it's interesting. It's like you're kind of two tracking things. You're you're working on this weekly magazine where you're following the news and you're trying to be in in a world that's like so fast paced. You're trying to process the news in an interesting way that's like kind of elevated that will feel lasting for a print publication. But we're also doing the minute to minute online and on social media. So you're doing all those things. And then on another track, you're trying to like project into the future for like bigger impact stories for just special projects and larger issues. So when a big news event comes along, I think my first instinct as a photo editor and a a reporter, I'm just trying to think about like the biggest impact we could have with visuals and with our storytelling. And that's for all the platforms of time. But when a big news event happens, I think we just like try to pull back and think like, what is this going to mean in a week from now, a month from now, a year from now? As the the Black Lives Matter protests did gain momentum, I imagine that some of the discussions regarding who was going to be telling these stories with you was an important part of the process of deciding how you were going to cover the stories. Definitely. I I would say that is like one of the, the biggest conversations that's been happening in our newsroom in the last couple of years. We were invited by the New York Times to do a really interesting conference about like 
about like race and photography and who who we hire and our hiring practices and to really rethink everything years ago. It was a really interesting process to kind of go through. In my career, we've we've thought a lot about diversity, but there are still like these incredibly low numbers of women photographing covers and and big feature stories. And then when it comes to, I think, photographers, black photographers, and and just a more diverse group of photographers, it's like the numbers get even lower. So in the last couple of years, we've really been trying to like, to to think about how to like change that and flip it and, and really, really focus on creating just deeper relationships with a different group of photographers that can really bring something to our stories that that we're we're kind of missing and not having any diversity. And how did Devin Allen come into this story that you were creating? And I'd just be really interested to know how you came across his work, how you both met, and how the, you know, the project unfolded that you that you knew that Devin was going to be the photographer that you were working with or his image was going to be the one that you used, um, and how that came about um, as a process, really? Sure. It's kind of really a a very long (laughs) conversation that we could talk about for hours. Yeah, well, it's interesting to the listeners, you know, there's so many young photographers, but they don't know how, you know, how things work in a magazine. So it's so useful to them to hear to hear this story, you know? Sure, sure. As a photo editor, you know, I've been photo editing for a long time now. It's, It's like almost 20 years, over 20 years of working at magazines. And, you know, I really think about a big part of being a photo editor is being a mentor to photographers and being their, you know, being their coach in a ways. And because it, people come at photography from so many different angles. So not everyone goes to photo school and is professional. When people kind of come into the realm of doing editorial or news work, there's so much sort of like coaching and building of, um, of somebody's talent to get them to work in that space and to, to make their, their vision work in, in your space. Like, so you're kind of like going both ways with them. As a photo editor, I, I don't like to... Um, to kind of influence someone's work too much. I really think it's in the photographer and my job is to just bring it out, bring out the best of it. And and that's pretty much with a very light touch. <laughs> but but just to to pull back for a second like in terms of process like I would say with the story of Black Lives Matters, you know, it, it's as as somebody who mainly focuses on national news and politics at time, um, that that was like kind of my main responsibility as a photo editor. So when Trayvon Martin was killed, seventeen-year-old Trayvon Martin, whose death has provoked weeks of demonstrations, and tonight a rally in New York City. It was a story that I was immediately working on. And then when Eric Garner was killed, this is the dramatic video that has triggered a wave of controversy. It was something that actually happened very close in my neighborhood. It was just a few blocks away from me. And it, it really like made me go deep into that story and actually interviewed the videographer. I think I was one of the first people to do a story on the videographer, Ramsey Orta, who filmed Eric Garner's death. And I was kind of surprised, like, you know, in the days after the, the event that like no one talked to him, no one was like kind of doing a, a really deep sit down with him. So that was kind of my strategy on getting into that story was to really think about the visuals. And that's a space where I feel most, most comfortable talking about. And so I, I really wanted to know what kind of like how he made that video, what he was going through, give a sense of who he was. and. 
it was a story that that you know worked on very deeply with um, other editors and reporters, kind of guiding me through it too. I, I don't think anything at time kind of gets done alone in the vacuum. And I always want photographers and videographers to know that they also have support from us too. That that extends to them. It's not just us kind of taking from them. It's like we really want to be there for them guide them through things, you know, watch out for them, their security, their safety, things like that. And, and when things come out and are published. But so like, that was just sort of like the beginning of getting into these, these stories. And then like, within that, that era, like, you know, the, the, the hashtag Black Lives Matter, you know, became viral. And I, I just always remember the, the first image I saw of like the, was it Howard University students? I don't know. Um, who did the group picture. Oh, I don't know. I think, I think it was, it was, I think either Howard, it was, it was a historically black college. I remember a group of students got together mm. and they all like, you know, put up the hashtag and they had this image go up and it went viral. And that was the first time I saw the hashtag sometime after Eric Garner was killed. Paul was a little unsure as to when he first saw the Black Lives Matter hashtag, so he wrote to me with a correction. The first time that he did see it was on a photo that went viral, on a post from Alicia Garza, Patrice Couleur and Opal Tometi. But from those moments, I think, you know, just as a photo editor, I was thinking a lot about how Time Magazine has represented race in the past and, and how we've put it, the issue on our covers and in our visuals and was, was thinking a lot about those things. And then as we, you know, went from, from, from news story to news story, all these stories were happening very close to each other. Mike Brown, Philando Castile, um, Freddie Gray in Baltimore in, in 2015. And when, when all this you know, as this was all happening, Walter Scott, we were putting these these stories on our covers in, in different ways. When it came to the story of Baltimore and Freddie Gray, it was, I think, you know, it, it was it was a hard story. We were like just thinking about this ongoing news story and like how do we how do we keep telling it in words and how do we keep telling it visually? And I remember a lot of the time, like, you know, we only have two or three days to make the magazine. We kind of come in on Monday and we close the magazine and send it off to the printers by Wednesday afternoon. Oh, wow. So it's a very quick turnaround. I remember I seeing Devin Allen's images for the very first time through, we had our photo blog Lightbox was, was publishing two to three stories a day. And our editor at the time, um, Olivia Laurent, um, posted a story about Devin Allen's pictures and how Rihanna retweeted one of his pictures. And, and so it was kind of a, a deeper look at his, his Instagram feed and how he was documenting what was happening in Baltimore and, and just thought, oh, that, that's really interesting. This is definitely a photographer to watch. I'm going to follow him. I just remember this picture popped up of, that we used on the cover in 2015. And it was just, Working on covers for so long at time, I, I could see like the cover logo on pictures <laughs> and and the red border because those are really like, you know, they take up a lot of space, those items. And and I just either pictures hold up with those or or they kind of get 
kind of clobbered by them or overwhelmed. But Devin's picture just looked like a movie poster. And that, that is like, it kind of just sang when, when the, when the border and the logo went onto it. And then all we really needed was a cover line. And I remember thinking a a lot about the images from 1968. I was already researching like older protests. And I had these two pictures, one that was Devin's and one that was from 1968 that almost looked the same. And I was like, I went to our creative director and I just said, wouldn't it be really cool if our, our moving digital cover you know, kind of faded from 1968 till now and just like showed like, has anything changed in America? Like, and then um, he kind of put this cover together with um, America, you know, and the year. And I remember our editor-in-chief just came by, Nancy Gibbs, and just crossed out the year and put like 2015. And and that was like the cover line. That's like, it got done on a table. Wow. What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It has taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? The British Film Institute has been a big part of my life for a very long time. I've seen so many films that I couldn't have seen anywhere else. I've been to great director talks and more recently I've enjoyed their film content online. And I'm excited that the BFI have offered six memberships to Shade Patreon patrons. Membership includes priority booking, free and discounted tickets and exclusive BFI events. You'll also receive discounts on film rentals, which includes some amazing archived work, including their Black Britain on Film series, which I regularly dive into for research. To win, name the book by Franz Fanon, made into a 1996 film by Isaac Julian, which is also available on a BFI website. Message me the answer via Patreon for the chance to win. And if you haven't signed up to Patreon yet for as little as £1 a month, you can support this work and access this season's subscriber gifts. So join me on Shade Patreon today via patreon.com forward slash shade podcast for the chance to win your BFI membership. At the same time as like having the conversations in the office, you know, we're having this conversation about about Devin Allen and about like about the importance of of having a photographer who's representing their own community, about showing us another layer that's much deeper than the average news photographer would get. And there were so many reasons for wanting to use this image, but there were also there was a lot of caution too. It was like Devin wasn't a professional photographer, so. Um, I wasn't quite sure how the image was made and what his like sort of journalistic standards were for making photography. Was the image like, you know, had questions about like, was the image altered in any way? It's black and white, like all these things. So, you know, simultaneously, I'm going through a process of like, you know, vetting um, as we would with any photograph that we put on our cover. We want to really know how it was made and all the circumstances that are around it to make sure it's accurately portraying the story we're trying to tell. 
So I just started this incredibly intense conversation with Devin, you know, where we're just really getting to know each other in this really fast way and kind of learning everything about his life, his picture making, how this image came about. He's sending me the raw files. I'm checking them out. I'm also looking at all the other news photography around this event to make sure we're contextualizing it properly. So those are all the things that are kind of leading up to that that cover, the America 2015 cover. Yeah, amazing. I can't believe that the power of Instagram that you came across <laughs> his work. That's just so crazy, you know. And it was also Instagram where people were going to the most during the protests because I was asking um, my audience, if you weren't going to the big newspapers like the British newspapers over here to get most of your information on what was happening, where were you getting your information and where were you looking at the images? And everybody was saying that they were going to individual photographers' accounts on Instagram. And those were the accounts and the stories that they were trusting. So photographers on the ground who were taking the pictures, that they they knew their work before the protest happens and they knew how they communicated and they trusted them. And so that's where they were going for their for their source, like for their for their news. Yes, I, it's completely altered the landscape of of how we work and and media in a lot of ways and in terms of who tells the stories of, you know, of any news event. But I think the first time I found images where I published an entire story that I found on Instagram specifically were around Trayvon Martin actually. Um, I remember coming home from work late at night, being really exhausted, still trying to figure out how we're going to illustrate this like story about what happened to Trayvon Martin and the the protests rising around the country. I remember specifically being in bed and flipping through Instagram and seeing a set of pictures. And I I wrote to the photographer immediately at night. He said they were available. And the next day I had them in layouts. We're finding more and more on Instagram and we're finding actual photographers that we've never found before. Um, You know, with the Trayvon Martin story, I, I definitely, I found pictures from a photojournalist who I worked with before. But with with Devin, it was like, you know, somebody who wasn't a professional photographer at the time and and somebody who was just really sort of had had incredible instincts and was emerging as a photographer. But I, I do think Instagram has introduced us to so many artists we would have never encountered. It, it's helped us diversify our hiring. It's helped us find more local photographers in, in terms of hiring geographic diversity all around the world. And it's one of the first places we look for people when, we're, when we start researching like how to approach a story and how to tell it now. As we moved on to 2020, you connected with Devin again for the most recent cover that he he shot for you and the the way that those images were received and not only was Devin's 2020 cover circulated so widely that's why you know all of this series came together because it was just so powerful and but then at the same time people were circulating the 2015 cover like simultaneously it's interesting to see how the audience can propel a story when devin shot the 2015 cover we we were just getting to know each other and i was so excited about that cover i have to say in all my years at time i've been at time for 11 years it's my favorite cover of all the years, I think it really stands up. It's definitely something that people always ask me, what's my favorite cover? And I really do think this image contains the same energy and the same lift. 
that um, keeps me drawn to it. But I, I really wanted to meet Devin and get to know him. I went down to to Baltimore and and um, had you know a meal with him and and just like wanted to thank him and get to know him. And he was just like an incredible spirit and energy. And so we just kept the conversation going over the years. I just like want to continue to like foster that relationship with a new photographer and and keep keep like encouraging them to to keep in touch with us to keep shooting. It's not they're not going to survive alone on editorial. But I think any encouragement, any support you can offer is really good. I was just interested in keeping the you know, our connection going and the relationship and the support. And when George Floyd was killed, and protests started to break out around the country. And, and they were increasing with Breonna Taylor and, and Ahmad Avery. I, I was immediately in touch with, with Devin and a bunch of other photographers across the country just being like, if you're going out to cover protests, let me know what's going on. And so Devin was doing that. He was sending me pictures every day and really telling me what was happening on the ground there, what the protests looked like, which we really rely on. He was really focused on Baltimore at the time. He was out there every day. The first week, we actually, I was kind of like, I'm sorry, Devin, I don't think we're like seeing a cover, you know, we're going to do a painting, actually. And we actually did this cover, which had a painting by Titus Kapoor on the cover. And but I was like, let's just keep going. This story isn't going anywhere. And it's still still moving. And so we just we just kept working. And we published one of his pictures inside that issue. And I was like, oh, I'm glad we got this. The, here's like what's happening around the country. It was part of a portfolio of, of protests around the country. And the next week, he, he sent us this picture. And it was just another one of those pictures. And no one quite went for it right away. But then I kept pushing for it. And as the week got closer to Wednesday, this, this cover definitely kind of rose above the others. And it it just kind of it it married with the this larger cover story the idea and concept of the cover story and it's just it's it's an incredible image and it, i think the incredible thing about looking at both covers from 2015 and the one from this year they both have this like incredible energy that like kind of i don't know it just like i think there's a real like lift in both of them yeah, yeah, absolutely. And when I think of Devin's work, and I think of those two images, like energy is the first word that, that, that comes to mind. And the one thing about the crowd that's kind of everything really interesting picture is like, there's almost this like die in happening where people are yes. laying on the ground. Some people are standing and look a little confused. It almost looks like the whole street was knocked down by this like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this yeah. person's like yelling at them to rise or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's such a Rorschach test. You could read it so many different ways. You're right. But you know, that's a unique image, though. It's not often you quite often see a mass of protesters or one particular character or person will come to the foreground, you know. But all of the different elements of that picture, like it's uh, it's kind of confusing in a way that it reflects the feeling of of the time. I agree with you completely about that confusion yeah. in the picture, because I, I do think we had no idea, and we still don't, of where all this is going. 
all of this support and connectivity that we have, sometimes I forget that, you know, we are like, you know, in general, a group who believes in, you know, social change and progression and inclusivity and and civil rights and human rights. But what I forget sometimes is until I I turn on the news and then I get reminded, but not everybody feels the same way about these issues <laughs> as we perhaps do and so I'm only used to seeing all the positivity and and the, the amazing responses to, to the covers that you do especially the ones that we've just talked about today but I'm just interested to know if there's any detractors do you get any feedback from any weird groups who respond to your images or is your images and your audience and your market there's just like a direct kind of relationship that you have with them and you don't really have to deal with or, or, <laughs> or sort of manage any communication from from you know other groups who may not agree with the content that you're putting out huh I, I think you're right. Like, you know, we we do get there is this like worry that we do get trapped in a bubble. Like when I put these covers on my own feeds or on Times feed uh, on Times feed, it's like I try not to read the comments because the comments do go crazy all over the place and are, are very split and show maybe the worst side of of sort of social media. But you know, but I would say that these covers have been received in in a very positive way, more than negative in 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 both cases. But our covers in general, like you know, the interesting thing about social media is like you're no longer just like sort of in this ivory tower making news magazine. <laughs> you know, you are hearing directly from the audience um, and any criticisms from 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 photography critics and and media critics and things like that which are always really interesting to to read and to consider and, and really important to consider as an editor. But but I, I think like, I don't know, it, this the, our election here then is a reminder that not everyone feels the same. You know, I would say with, with making any of these covers, like, you know, they're you're always looking for an image that like, that, you know, sums up the time, but like, it's also a little bit of, I think I said this earlier, like a Rorschach test, like, you know, it's like, how is someone going to read it? And um, I think you can see these covers in multiple ways. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's just been so shocking to me to see the results of your uh, election that, and, and also what happens over here with Brexit. And because it's such a stark reminder, I just think, oh, gosh, so these people that kind of vote in the, like in the opposite way that perhaps we may do, I just wonder what they think when they walk past the newsstands and they see all these images just wonder what it's like for them so it just crosses my mind sometimes i do too and i think there's like this you know we we've seen around the world like this increasing distrust because of manipulation on social media and 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 the way the news has changed the way like cable news has changed the landscape and it is a really confusing time for people and i think if you don't follow the news and you're getting bits and bobs of things like you, you stop trusting everyone and you turn to your friends or the people that you feel like you know. And as journalists, I would say I, I feel a real responsibility for figuring out ways for audiences to feel more connected to the news, to know where it's coming from, to have a certain like type of transparency about news imagery and how it's made and what they're seeing and to carefully contextualize these pictures so people know they're getting as much accurate information as possible and can find truth in things and and to to feel comfortable in, in what's being presented to them. And that's that's just such a huge 
job. But I think if if anything, um, the last couple of years have hopefully made us all work harder and be better at our jobs because like we we can't make a mistake right now because like we're just called into question so much on a daily basis. And that that's what I wanted to wrap up this conversation with is ask you how you see your role within this whole story moving forward. What have you experienced that's made you feel optimistic about the progress that we've made regarding representation in, in photography and journalism? And, and, and how do you see your role within that? Um, I think it's a really complicated conversation. And, and um, but I think it really starts with who's in this position of power, a gatekeeper, you know, somebody who hires people to, um, to, to tell the news and to take pictures for us. I think it's really our responsibility to make sure that we, um, we look at like the relationships that we're fostering and the talent we're fostering and and to make sure that reflects the world and the stories that we're telling. The best work comes out of having really um, good relationships with photographers to the point where they trust you with the work and that you could push them to do things that they've never done before to, to kind of get out of their comfort zone. And, you know, as a photo editor, I think like it starts there. It really starts with the relationships. It starts with a basic phone call. Hey, I appreciate your work. Let's let's do a Zoom call. Let's have a meeting and get to know each other a little bit more. And then you follow them on Instagram and you like their pictures and and but like you hope something kind of creative comes out of that, like a real you get to tell a story together one day. And I I don't approach, you know, image making differently with anyone else. It's kind of basically how it happens with everyone. But I think it's like it's a it, I feel more responsible in the last couple of years to definitely increase the diversity of the people I'm hiring and and to really think about like, is this an accurate portrayal of the world we live in and, and in terms of the people we're using to tell stories and and um, am I falling back? Am I relying too much on the same people over and over? Uh, am I not giving other people opportunities? It's a constant self-examination process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really important point. And, uh, you know, there's many publications who maybe could follow that suit a little bit more. It's that checking in with yourself constantly, but also the transparency that you talk about is so important. And and that's what you've done in this conversation, Paul. I'm just really glad that you gave the time to to share with the audience how things work at the magazine, because that transparency is not only interesting, also the transparency really matters as well. And, and I really thank you for, for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. I, I feel like, um, you know, I feel honored to be asked to, to do something like this. And I, I really think about the job a lot. And I do feel lucky that I get to be around photography and, and photographers all the time, because I, I really do love it. I think the best thing we could do as journalists is just to elevate, you know, the voices around us and don't make the byline about yourself. Like I, I really love to interview a photographer and give them the byline, just put their their voice and their words. And, and that's the best thing I could do with the platform of time. Can I just tell you, I'm really jealous of your job. Like to, oh, to work you, with photography but, and photographers. Oh my God, with the, with the work that you're just spending time with daily. Oh, what a joy that must be. It, it really is the, the like the energy that comes from photography. I'm obsessed with photography. You know, it's like I'm going to go really yes. off here. But, you know, <laughs> I think we're, we're both image makers. We both like work yeah. it with like, you know, trying to like decipher photography for our organization. <laughs> I think too many people like pigeonhole themselves a little bit into having 
to be just a photographer or just be a curator or professionalize. I think like, you know, professionalization in schools has like done this to all of us. But I think like, why not use your expertise and go go with like your gut and take the energy into like different places and be creative with it and cross the lines. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And I've got to say, I had a bit of a look through your Instagram today. You're not a bad photographer yourself. I was like, okay, is somebody else taken these? Like you've hired someone from the magazine or these actually your pictures? Oh, thank you. We're, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> And that's the end of my conversation with Paul Moakley. The gatekeepers of our major media and publishing companies are making some changes about how they tell their stories by hiring black photographers and writers. And people like Paul are helping that process to continue. However, we need to see a bigger shift where the gatekeepers are more representative of our society. We need those who hold the power to choose what stories are told to be as representative as the stories that they are telling. And that isn't happening. So at some point, I'd love to circle back on this thought in the future and catch up with Paul and ask, you know, whether that positionality has shifted. And those are my thoughts after talking with Paul, but I'd love to hear from you too. Drop me a line on social media and let me know what you think. If you enjoyed this show, please support the work by subscribing via whatever app you listen to your podcasts on. And consider becoming a Shade patron by visiting patreon.com forward slash Shade podcast. Shade is produced and hosted by me, Lou Mensa, and the music is created for Shade by legendary composer Brian Jackson, half of the power duo Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. Thanks to Content is Queen for assistant editing and to C.A. Davis for editing, mixing and sound design. Be sure to listen to C.A.'s own brilliant show called Alato Thought. I'll let C.A. tell you a little bit about that now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is C.A. Davis and this is a lot of thought. An immersive podcast that dismantles post-racial myths about mixed-race identities. Analyzing American history, law, and empire, each episode examines a contemporary idea about mixed-raceness in order to reveal that race is the lie that became real. You see, in America, mixed-race people have been routinely exploited to both justify and challenge systems of white supremacy. The hypo descent rule became the formalized definition of hereditary slavery. But people are not mixed. History is mixed. In the early 20th century, in Harlem, New Orleans, Black and South Asian peoples made lives together. The Creek Nation and the Cherokee Nation joined at Greenwood and Asher, right where the Tulsa riots occurred. And it's those historical processes of empire, war, immigration, economics, that mix us all up. The idea that mixed race people are somehow more biologically, genetically fit. I mean, that's just not true. Some multiracial people say, yes, they are black, but it doesn't encompass the fullness of, say, being raised by a Korean mom. So tune in as academic research and histories are brought to rich sonic life and woven together with the voices of intellectuals leading their fields. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, both at L-A-T-T-O underscore T-H-O-U-G-H-T and subscribe on your favorite podcast app today. My name is C.A. Davis, and I'll talk to you all soon.